Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Freeman Means Business Wonder Women in Business podcast. Everyone has a story, and our Wonder Women in Business podcast gives a voice to the women who have a story that is meaningful, moving, and compelling. We share their stories, or rather, they share their stories with the world so that in their shining, they give permission to others to shine. I'm excited today because we have a very special guest. With us today is Sarah Burke. And Sarah is an amazing talent that really is, uh, her story is going to surprise us. Sarah has experiences as a dancer. Uh, she has committed to uh, also seek out voices in the development and nourishment and presentation of the arts in the St. Louis community. But Sarah has a lot more to her in terms of dance. Her movement and her commitment to causes has taken her into spaces and given her opportunities that are truly amazing of a woman who is on the move. And so I want to welcome Sarah to the microphone. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Natalie. What an introduction. I'm excited to be able to start this conversation with you. As I looked at your bio, I was like, where do we get started? Well, <laughs> I think it makes sense to start at the beginning. So I'm going to invite you into this conversation and say, Sarah, tell us a little bit about your story. Give us some insight into your influences as a young woman uh, growing up and what led you on this path to passion in movement and then business and then back to movement. I won't tell the story. You will. But okay. <laughs> go right ahead. Well, thank you again. I am really thrilled to be here, Natalie. Yes, I had this extraordinary experience when I was younger. I um, lived in Laclede Town, which if anyone is interested, you can Google it. And it was a project in integrated living. So if there, it was, you could never do it now, but if there was, there was this beautiful community and there was a house for a white person, then a black person, then an Asian, then an immigrant. So you could, if there was no house available, like if I want, I had to actually wait because there was no, quote, unquote, White House. And so I won't, we just, my husband and I at the time wanted to really live there. It's all we really wanted. It was 1970. Um, and we were able to get in and you couldn't have too much money. You had to, you know, be in a certain situation. And so there was a black act. It was called Bag, the Black Artist Group. There, you know, we had pubs, we had cafe, we had community center. We had all of these things. And I, at the time, was a dancer I was dancing but I mostly just did like ballet modern you know white girl stuff so I always I had read actually I read about Catherine Dunham Miss Dunham as we were told to call her I had read about Miss Dunham and she was an anthropologist out of Chicago but she founded the Dunham Technique and is credited for and taught Alvin Ailey. And if anybody knows, or again, look up, you know, the Alvin Ailey Dance Company out of New York. I mean, they are 
worldwide. I was in Paris recently and went to their, you know, because of course we all know each other and we credit her. She is credited with development of the Ailey Dance Company. She also taught Marlon Brando and she had a big company in New York. And after a certain point, she wanted to go back into her community. She was kind of the first community activist and she wanted to go back into community work. So she picked the two most honestly, you know, stricken areas. She chose East St. Louis, which was Illinois, and she was from Chicago, which is right across the river from St. Louis. And then she chose Port-au-Prince, Haiti. Mm. To, in Haiti, she bought Josephine Bonaparte's home and put, you know, had like a hospital for being people who had just sad no money okay and then east st louis same thing and i read about the fact that she was literally over the river and i thought to myself how am i going to meet her then Town comes back into the picture because i went to the community center where we had dance and and there was this incredible drummer and he was african and to this day i would know his drum i re- i would just know it was <laughs> No, I would know it was him. And so I thought, oh, you know, I want to get to know him. Well, I found out that he was brought to St. Louis by Catherine Dillon and she had his passport. And when she was in Senegal for the African festival, um, Leopold Singho, the president of Senegal, took her to the symphony and she saw Morsham in the drum section. And she said, I want him to come to the States with me. So that's how, so I met him and now I'm thinking, I bet I can, because to go to East St. Louis, when you lived in St. Louis in the seventies, you just really didn't go, you, you know, you just didn't go there. It was considered dangerous. Some people right. called Bosnia. I mean, it was, it was, it was not something that you could just go and find her and knock on her door. So Morshan brought me to meet Catherine Dunham and that's when my life really um, exploded. And I asked her if I could learn the Dunham technique at this big, beautiful studio. And it was connected to um, Southern Illinois University, but the East St. Louis branch. And I just said, you know, is there any way that I could possibly, you know, would, you know, whatever. So Morshan brought me, as I said, and he, he then left me there for like two hours. And I was so intimidated because she's a high priest of voodoo. She's, she was, you know, just this extraordinary woman. And she had this karma around her, this charisma. And so we sat in her parlor and had tea. And then Natalie, she brought me into her kitchen. And she said, I want you to see something. And in her kitchen was a map of the world. Mm-hmm. And on the map were all these pins, beautiful pins in most of the world. And white pins in most of the south of Saint, of the United States. And she said to me, you see the white pins? And I'm like, yes. And she said, those are the places I will not go back. Those are the places that my company and I could not eat or sleep. And so those are, those are the white pins and they will stay white until I'm invited back to and through the front door for my company, for you know people of color who want to see me. And I'm standing in the kitchen. I'm looking at this map and I'm thinking, oh, she's never going to invite me. <laughs> she's just going to be like, I go home now. 
So then we sat back down and she was like, Sarah, tell me, you know, why, you know, you want to do this because you're a ballerina, you're a modern dancer. And I said, because I, I want to learn movement that has meaning, that is anthropologically based. I'd love to learn. So. Wow. Well, yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to pause us there because that is something that makes me curious. Okay. Um, here you are and on your own adventure, a young woman, very determined to meet someone who has struck you with what she's done and where she's been and the, the, the passion that she brings to movement and dance, which is not what you were classically trained as. No. But how did you find your passion overall for dance? What was young Sarah's experience growing up? Were, were there uh, dancers in your family or was this your mission? <laughs> it ended up being my mission. My father and mother loved to dance. Um, and I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, which is sort of why this journey is more, even more extraordinary because how I got from like, you know, all white Wisconsin, you know, Green Bay, Wisconsin, but I was taking dance lessons since I was three. And it was just a passion. You know, it's this kind of thing where you can't not do it. You you maybe would like to do something else. Like I loved skiing, but you had to make, I had to make a choice. It, you know, the dance, the dance profession will say to you, either you dance or you ski. You can't ski and break a bone and then you're, careers over. So I did start at an early age and I, my parents loved to dance, but no one in my family was a professional dancer. What would you say then was the biggest risk that you took? Because, all right, we're talking back in the day, this mm -hmm. was not a traditional career path. No, and, no. and so I was supposed I, to be a teacher or, you know, mm, something safe, something safe, yes. But, yes. but there was clearly something in you that preferred not to take the safe route. Mm -hmm. um, was I, there an I, inspiration or a role model that kind yes. of pulled you in that direction? I think so. I think I was always interested in the, there had to be a bigger world mm. than the world I was born into and the world that I was living. Because I was like, everybody looks just like me. And I don't think that's the way I want to live so I was driven really and I don't know what it was but at a very early age to want to explore and we had um foster children stay with us we had people Cuban children stay with us for a little while so I started to just get like really interested in culture and other other um journeys that people take you know their hardships what it means to be an immigrant, you know, what it means to be poor, what it means to be without hope. What what are all these things and what can I do? I'm a, just a dancer. So it was through the Catherine Dunham experience that I found, actually found my voice. Mm. Because when she said to me, you may join, take the class. I wasn't yet invited to the company, but you can take the class. She also said to me, Sarah, I'm going to ask you one thing. Remember when you cross that 
body of water, for us, it's an ocean. And for you, it's a river. Wow. And people call this my ocean speech because if you hear it, you don't forget it. And so I think that clarion call through dance, I never thought of dance as an instrument of social justice. You know, I just thought of dance is pretty, I feel pretty, and I did all the pretty dancing. And then when I got to St. Louis and I read all about Catherine Dunham and dancing anthropology course, it just changed my life. Because I learned, I mean, there were movements, Natalie, that were movements that I, I never did before and that it was difficult. There were anthropological movements that that I couldn't do. One was picking cotton and I had to step out. I, I knew I had to. Mm. I said, you know, that's a bridge too far. And I talked to her and she missed on and was like, I'm really proud of you because I said, there's nothing in my DNA that can do that. I know, I know the movement, but that's not the same thing. Because you have to feel the movement. You, right? It's not in my history. It's not in my DNA. It's not in my family. It's not. And it also was very hard to, to, to watch. It, it was, was very hard to watch. I mean, part of this whole dance anthropology is opening your eyes to dance as, as a way of change making. So would you say, Sarah, that you found your calling in this area? Yes, because I opened a dance studio. Ah, you have come full circle. Tell us about that journey because it it couldn't have been easy. Oh. So what would you say was your biggest challenge <laughs> as you, okay, you are, you're the pupil, the student, mm -hmm. and now you're moving beyond now I'm in the dance company for years. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. You what know, was... That was the big, big, I was the first white dancer in the company in East St. Louis. And that was a big honor and uh -huh. a big challenge and very um, hard and rewarding. What was sort of a, 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 a challenging moment for you in that space as the only white dancer in the company? I think the, one of the one just the challenge was mostly being able to communicate through dance how much it meant to me to be there and how enriched I was and it was hard there were several people especially this one guy Michael who really did not want me there and said it and would stand in front of the elevator when I would come and you know tell me I couldn't get on and you know but I understood that I didn't blame, I didn't blame, I mean, I didn't necessarily want me there either if I'd been the Dunham company. So I think Miss Dunham made it clear I was her invited, you know, guest and that helped, but I still had to break down. I still had to prove my sincerity and, and that I was really, and what I ended up really trying to say to everybody is I'm about this dance. I'm about learning this technique. I want to learn it. I want to be a part of it. I want to be a part of the company. I don't want to be part of this um, community. And we're all still together. We still have dinners and it's wild. I mean, everybody in the Dunham world is great. Is honestly. Well, I, I can <laughs> just imagine. <laughs> huge, huge, huge personalities. So Sarah, what does uh, being authentic then mean in your life? Because oh. you've had many... I would imagine um, humbling moments, learning oh. moments, highs and lows. 
um, what does authentic mean in your and, life? And thank you for saying humbling. Cause I, you know, I, I was searching for a word and Natalie, you, you've given me that word. So thank you. That was very authentic. <laughs> um, you know, authentic for me means being uncomfortable because in, in authentic times for me in the dance world that I was in then, I always felt like I had to inhale and hold and inhale until I could just get the movement and exhale. And I think I, I think I will say being authentic was admitting all of the past sins of, you know, white people in this country and, you know, being able to have courageous conversations. And we had many courageous conversations. And I think that has provided me with a path of, of authenticity in all that I do. I mean, I everything I do, I think to myself, I hear Miss Dunham's voice, which is like, don't be silent. You can't be silent. And, you know, there are times on boards or whatever where I make people very uncomfortable. And I don't care because we don't have time anymore. We, we just don't have time to make excuses. We don't have time to back away from sharing power. We, you know, it's time now. It's time that we move over and share our power and get out of the way. So much can definitely be accomplished when we can have courageous conversations. Yes. And yes. it is not a space that most women enjoy being. No, um, I love it. I know. So in addition to the authenticity, what, what values, what, what deeply held values keep you going, committed and focused because you're doing other work. Oh yeah. Just teaching dance. So oh, no. tell us a little bit about those deeply held values and how those help you to keep moving forward. I think um, that's such a good question. I have a, I collect, I'm an art collector and I have a beautiful big painting. It's the first thing you see when you walk in and it's by a young black artist and it says justice. And it's, it's just gorgeous and it's huge. And it's sort of almost like graffiti. And that to me, the word justice is my value. Not religion, not politics, but justice. And I, I feel that that's something that I look at, at, pretty much everything I do. Is this just? Is it fair? And if it isn't, what can I do? What can one person do? What can I do? What can my friends do? And I think the biggest thing for me in terms of value is turning goodwill into action. Because truthfully, I hear so many people give, progressive, liberal people give voice to oh, diversity and equity and da da And then when there's a change made like recently at our theater, we hired this amazing black woman to run the theater. 50% of people canceled their um, season tickets and the board didn't support her, but they wanted her because they wanted to say, oh, we're, we're progressive, we're moving. And she was never given the support. So I asked to meet with them and I said, look, this is you know unsustainable. So, I think my value is is not only a thought, but it's an action. It's what can I do with that value to make change? What? How can I personally make see it, make it change? 
beyond the lip service. Yes. Oh, I'm checking. Absolutely. So what would you say, Sarah, has been your proudest accomplishment, personal or professional? What, What would you say has been that thing that you pushed through uh, or didn't expect or wow I I really deserve the hell out of this one (laughs) what what was it that what's your proudest accomplishment Um, my my proudest accomplishment taking you know moving aside opening and having a dance studio from 81 until four you know four years ago is the Catherine Dunham fellowship and that is what I am most proud of and it is a fellowship that I started um, and it's a paid fellowship. It's, it's, I pay for it. I make sure it's a lot of money. And I, um, Natalie, it, it's to get position, to get people of color, especially black people, to, to positions of power in arts administration where the decisions are made. So I, my goal was to create a bench of young people who would then, move into the world themselves and I would just back off you know I would provide the mentoring and so on we're in our 15th year and the um it is it is they're always over here it's like I have 18 million children but I look back I'm just in awe I am totally in awe they give each other jobs they are getting awards I I had to go to two awards last week for the Dunham Fellows and they keep the legacy alive. You know, they have to read books about Miss Dunham. They, they always put down that they're a Catherine Dunham fellow in their resumes. And they've gone on to do just great work. So the beautiful full circle of this is it, I wanted in the end for it to be the, the face of it to be run or, ha, you know, held by a black woman. So the very first Catherine Dunham fellow, Antoinette Carroll, has an incredible organization. It's a it's a social justice organization. And she now has the fellowship. So she is the face of it. She curates it. And I just fund it. I stay out of the way. And it's hard because the first 14 years, I was I was involved in every bit of it. And it's it goes back to my honest belief that white people, or I mean anyone who has power, but you know, mostly still white people take their hands off the table and just move over. You know, they don't, you know, I'm like, you don't have to leave, but create a space for someone who doesn't look like you. And so I'm really militant about this. And I don't really take prisoner. I mean, I'm, I don't care. I really, as, as somebody said, when we see you coming, we want to duck. <laughs> we know we're in trouble. But um, the fellowship has been so enriching, Natalie. I can't even, it's been the great joy of my life. I, I love the fact that you put that stake in the ground and you've nurtured it, developed it, and it's flourishing. Yes, it's incredible. Amazing. A whole generation of new, bright professionals in the world of art administration, making oh. decisions in spaces that they otherwise might not have had the opportunity to get to. So you know, me, meant, no, go ahead. No, no, I, well, I hate to cut off your train of thought. Do you I'm want sorry. to? No, go ahead. Right. It's fine. Okay. So, and I, and thank you for talking about the first woman fellow there, because the next question I want to ask you is, is one about women in leadership. 
How would the world be different if more leaders were women? Um, how much time do we have? <laughs> well, not that much, but <laughs> no, I know, right? Um, I think the 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 world would be. I mean, the leadership picture would look completely different, and I think it's because you know women don't lead with their ego. I think they leave lead with goals like i feel like i always look at how can this be better how can we how can we work together i think women in general are collaborators and i think in order to have success you have to collaborate i think i won't say what i think about men but <laughs> i do feel that women can together make a huge difference and are making a difference i mean i can just point to the fellowship they're making a huge difference in opportunities for each other, in working together, in putting aside, you know, like one gets an award, the other one isn't jealous. They're just happy. They lift each other up. And I think that's what women do. Um, and I think that's the main thing is that the, the women are collaborative. And I think that's how you get, I think that's how you get things done. That is definitely how you get things done. Um, lift and rise, we say, right? Yes, um, right, all boats, all boats. That's right, rising tide lifts all boats. Exactly. There is something that is so important that you said about it's hard, but I recognize the need to let go. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about okay. why it is important mm -hmm. to let go as women um, in every space that we're in. Okay. The reason I think it's so important to let go is that without diverse voices, without young voices, you know, middle-aged voices, old voices, but without a cacophony of voices, we're, we're in an echo chamber. We just hear ourselves, people who look like us, who were raised like us, who have money, don't have money, who are on boards. And my feeling is that it is not easy because who wants to give up their power? Nobody. However, power sharing only makes you a, a more interesting, fuller person. So my example is there is this young woman, you know, a Dunham fellow who was brilliant. And, and I had to make a decision between would I be on a selection committee for a new executive director for an arts organization, I won't name it, or could she? And the head of the selection committee said to me, it either has, you know, we only have one more spot. Cause I called and I said, I really want her to be honest. She's young. She's black. She's incredible. And, and he was like, no, I understand that, but did, you know, you have that spot. And I said, well, I will willingly release that and give my spot. And let me tell you, it wasn't easy. I wanted to be on this selection committee more than I can tell you. This young woman is now president of the organization. Yeah, you just, it's the whole opportunity thing. I know it's overused, but put someone at the table and give them, a, give young people a chance to succeed because mentoring doesn't cost anything. You don't have to write a check. You just have to be willing to lift people up, especially people who don't look like you or who are young or who, who have no power base, who wouldn't even know how to, select you know be on a selection committee and I think that that's something that we have to all do more of I I definitely agree with you and I applaud you for recognizing the need to let go and the need 
to uh, open the door and step aside. Yeah, it was hard. I because I remember and I used because I say it all the time, share your power, do this. And when I had to do it, I had a moment where I thought, whoa, do I mean this or not? Well, does that mean you have to reinvent yourself, Sarah? When you let go, when you move aside, when you create space. Wow. What does that transformation, you said it's not easy. No. But but what what strategies or what what do you do to keep yourself um, feeling as relevant or as empowered? Or- oh, that word relevant is ah, my thing. Okay. <laughs> no, it's my thing. I love that word. And I'm old. So to be relevant is even more astonishing. That is so important because what I what I honestly have to say that you know, to reinvent yourself. And in that situation, I know what you're asking. I I looked at what this position of power did for her and the pride that I had in her and in seeing how it reinforced not only my decision, but, but the hard part of the decision. It was reinforced by her journey. And now this woman is co-creator of the hip hop culture show at St. Louis Art Museum, which is now going to be in Germany next. And it's 50 years of hip hop. She is a co-curator. This girl has gone off the rails. And I think if I hadn't moved, if I hadn't backed off, that path wouldn't happen. And I know that. And she knows that. And, and I don't, there's not a gratefulness. I said, you don't need to be grateful to me. That's not what I would ever want. I'm your cheerleader. I'm your fan club. And so that's the reinvention that happens is you realize that power is meant to be shared. And if you look at it that way, it's not a bad thing. You know, people accumulate power and then they don't, you know, then they just use it. They don't use it for good. And that's the reinvention part is to, to look at, at where people are going that you moved over and gave them that opportunity because all anyone needs is an opportunity. That's right. You've built, you build legacy by creating space. So you definitely, I love how you, you know, pride in her journey has fuel for you. Um, And we need to remember that sometimes our, our best fuel doesn't come from the things we do. You know, can I say, Natalie, I just love you. You are so, (laughs) you are you you say things that I'm feeling, Ugh. and I the words that I look for. You have them. Well, You're I'm so empathetic. Definitely connecting with you. So this is a big question. Yep. I want you to take a deep breath and think about this. I'm ready. What title would you give your memoir? Okay, that's that. I know what I would title it. What does your dinner table look like? Mm. What does your dinner table look like? The place where you come together to feast, to nourish, break bread, bread. tell stories. Because I don't think we tell our stories enough. That's why I love this podcast. That's why I love the Freeman organization. I think it's telling stories is how we stay relevant. That's how we stay relevant. But that's what I would call it. And that's a question I ask everyone. What does your dinner table look like? 
What does your dinner table look like? To me, it's a metaphor for what is your life. Is it does it look like you or not? Exactly. Yeah. Is it fulfilling? I love that. I love that. Well, this has been an amazing conversation and there are so many different aspects to you. Let me just ask you quickly, what else are you doing? Um, because I read something in your bio about mm -hmm. your passion around diversity, mm -hmm. equity, inclusion. Mm -hmm. Is there something we should know about you, Sarah? Well, you know about the fellowship. Yes. And... Um, so, and this, and you probably don't know that I opened this dance studio and I had it for years, but it, one of the reasons was to create a space for diversity and equity. And this was in the eighties. So I, I was like really interested in people meeting each other, but through something like dance and through denim technique. So, you know, that was a very impactful time in my life for me. Now I um, work with diversity. I do consulting. I work with dance companies I work with certain boards where you know they're clueless and you know and no and, I, and the first thing I do say is well what does your dinner table look like because if you have true friendships and you break bread with all kinds of people then you don't have to start scouring scouring and dragging people off the street to be on your boards because it's it doesn't work like that and I think the one thing that I've been doing as a consultant is trying to explain that you do have to try harder. You have to get in the car and pick someone up. If you want someone to go to a play, you go and you find out who can come and who their friends, and you just go. You just do what it takes. What it ever it takes, you do it. Do whatever it takes. It, you really have to. You can't just put up, like people will say, well, you don't have any black actors. And then they, they'll say, well, you know, we put an audition, we put up notices, nobody comes. I'm like, that's not how it works. Nobody feels welcome. You don't just put that up. You, It's an effort. It's a long effort. You have to mean it. You have to make, you know, it's relationship building. It is relationship yeah. building. Wow. Mm -hmm. So Sarah, if if someone in our listening audience wants to find you and connect with you, mm -hmm. how can they do that? I'm happy to give, I have two emails, so I'm happy to give one out. Okay, should I give it to you? Yes, go right okay. ahead. <laughs> Sarah, XO Paris at yahoo.com. Sarah. Sarah without an H. Ah. Very good. And Very I welcome good. anyone, you know, I'd be happy to answer any questions. Well, this has been a great conversation. Um, starting out with your adventure uh, yeah. and your commitment and determination uh, to, to find yourself in spaces that were not comfortable. Uh, being a pioneer of the courageous conversation. And I love your commitment to justice, what's fair, what's just. Um, I love your, your, your sharing that um, power is not something that we accumulate and just keep. In the sharing, we empower and enrich others. And yes, I agree with you that if women were leading the world today, we lead without ego, most of us. Mm -hmm. We lead moving toward goals and we are by nature collaborators. There would be so much more that we could accomplish. <laughs> right? I know it's, it's astonishing. 
It is astonishing. Well, I've enjoyed this time getting to know you, and I know others have walked away with truly the inspiration that you've shared tonight. Thank you for being our guest. It Thank was my you. honor to Me have you. It was mine. <laughs> and when I am writing a memoir, so I'll come back and you know, you'll be the first place I'll come to hold the book up. Well, we'll be looking for that <laughs> memoir. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you. thank you again for being our guest on this podcast. It was my pleasure, Natalie. Thank you so much.